All right. Well, good morning, River City Church. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you guys this morning. I've been out of the pulpit for a few weeks, taking some vacation, a little time off, working ahead on a few other things, getting ready for our series in the fall. And so I'm just like really grateful for uh, for John and for Aaron who preached while I was away, and just grateful for them to bring God's word. And I think it's just like so important as a as a church that we have a culture that's just. I'm so encouraged that like the culture of our church is not just one that's dependent on me or something like that. And so we have lots of people who can teach God's word and who can help us to love Jesus and see him in his word. And so we're thankful for that. And so I especially am. So anyways, well, I'm excited to uh, start wrapping up our series in the book of Corinthians. And uh, we have just three weeks left. I know you're all just deeply distraught and you have loved being in the book of 1 Corinthians for the last six months. But our time in Corinthians is coming to an end. And uh, before, we, uh, before we dive in, uh, so maybe like me, you were gone the past couple of weeks, or, uh, or you just knew. And so let me just catch you up briefly on where we're at, and we'll dive back into, uh, dive back into, our, into the passage this morning. So uh, like I've said before, Corinthians is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he helped start about five years prior to the writing of this letter. And, and the church was in the, the Greco-Roman city of Corinth, and Corinth was, as we've articulated, over and over that Corinth was this incredibly important and wealthy port city. It was located in such a place where it was really strategic for shipping basically between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And so what happens is that uh, Corinth is this very wealthy and influential city, but the, the really unique thing about Corinth was that it was actually a pretty new city. Uh, Rome had destroyed and conquered the city of Corinth, about 100, uh, and then decided they would let it sit desolate for a while and then resettle it about 100 years prior to the writing of this letter. And so what you have is a city that in the ancient world is wildly new. Uh, one in which people are coming from all different kinds of places. And, and what happened is that Rome mainly settled the city of Corinth with freed slaves and former army veterans. And so you had as a city that wasn't just new, but was full of people who were looking to make a new life and a new name for themselves and, and a new, uh, just a, a new identity for themselves. And and that context is really important because the reality is what in, in Corinth is that, is that making a name for yourself, making an identity for yourself, being seen as impressive and influential, that was the thing that mattered the very most. It's the thing that everything in the culture of Corinth revolved around. One commentator summed it up this way. He said, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. And tragically, what we see is that the, the church in Corinth was no exception. Instead of being uh, intentional and deliberate and being focused on, on God and his glory and, and the advancing of his kingdom, what we see is very clear is that the thing that matters most to them is their own glory and the advancing of their own identity and their own name and their own kingdom. And see, and the reality is, is that this self-centered mindset was at the heart of pretty much all of the numerous problems that the Apostle Paul has to address in this dysfunctional church, including, as we'll see this morning, the way that they viewed money and especially, specifically, giving their money away. Now, I know all of you, when I talk about money, are like, wow, I'm stoked. I can't wait to talk about money in church. It's my favorite thing ever, right? Maybe you're new and you're come this morning and you're like, I really hope that we talk about money. It's my favorite thing. It's just, I love it so much, right? Well, you're welcome, because we will, right? It's going to be, you, you came on the perfect week if that was the case, right? 
but in all seriousness, the, the reason that we're going to talk about money this morning is not because our church is behind on budget and we really need to up our giving. Like, we're doing, we're doing great. Things are going well. Uh, or it's not because uh, I'm hoping to get some sweet raise next year, right? Like, legitimately, things are going fine, right? No, we're talking about it because it's what's next in, in the book. It's just the next passage. It's the next thing in the list of things that Paul talks about. And one of the benefits of just preaching through books of the Bible like we tend to do here at River City is that you just end up talking about all kinds of stuff you wouldn't normally want to really spend time talking about or maybe you might skip over or overemphasize or underemphasize. The reality is that money is really not the most fun thing to talk about. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was a Reuters article that, that talked about money as the last taboo, and it talked about how almost 50% of Americans would, would, dis, would articulate that, that their finances were the hardest thing for them to talk with, any about, with anyone about. You see, and the reality is that money can be hard to talk about because the reality is that the way we spend and use and manage and give our money, it reveals a lot about who we are and about what we care about. And it can make us feel really vulnerable and, and insecure sometimes, but also because I think there'll be all kinds of feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation that come with conversations of money, especially in the church when it comes to conversations about giving, right? And so before we dive in this morning, I just want to kind of head all of that crap off at the pass by reminding us about the grace of God as we head into our time this morning. Paul Tripp, I think, sums it up best. He writes it this way. He says, we all have our issues when it comes to money, but we can face our money issues with hope, not because we are wise or able, but because God is. And he offers us his forgiving, rescuing, and transforming grace. He says, God's grace opens the door to a whole new relationship with money for each of us, not because we are good and deserve it, but because God is good, and he offers us his grace that is powerful and transformative. And so with that in mind, let's pray as we dive into our time in God's word and see how he might be shaping our understanding of what it looks like to be a generous people. God, uh, we're just grateful for you. Thanks that you have uh, called us together this morning, that we might uh, know you and love you and, and sit and study under your word. And so we just humbly ask this morning, Jesus, as we, as we come together, that you would just be gracious, God, to keep course correcting our heart and our mindset, to keep shaping what it is that matters most to us, to keep um, transforming the things that we feel and think and the way that we perceive our world and our money especially. God, and for any of that to happen, we just say, like, we, we just really need your spirit to do that in us. And so I need you to empower me in, by your spirit to preach and teach not just what's right, but with a power and authority that I don't have apart from you. And Jesus, we need you to enable us to respond rightly. And so God, help us by your spirit uh, to not just understand your word rightly, but to be able to gladly and joyfully put ourselves under the authority of your, of your word. And so to that end, we pray, God, would you do that in us, God, for our good, but more than anything, we ask for your glory as we live as a people who reflects you. So pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the very last chapter of the book. And uh, we're going to begin in verses 1 through 4 this morning. Last week, Aaron did like 40 verses. I'm just doing four this morning, so it's bound to be better, right? Anyways. Uh, <laughs> That's a joke. Aaron did a great job last week, really grateful. So anyways, now verse number one begins this way. It says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. 
On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, then uh, they will accompany me then. All right, so the, the, the final chapter of 16, Paul begins by talking uh, in this letter to the Corinthians with some specific instructions about uh, the collection for the Lord's people in Jerusalem. And he doesn't give a lot of context about exactly what he's talking about in these verses. And in large part, that's because uh, he's responding in this section to a question the Corinthians had asked him in a previous letter. And so he doesn't really need to give all the details because they asked him something he's just responding to. But well, we don't get a lot of context in these specific verses. When If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, as well as passage in Romans 15, what we, what we learn there is that one of the things that Paul is doing as he's traveling around um, visiting churches and planting churches is that he's putting together funds to take back uh, to, to Christians in Jerusalem who are really poor and suffering. And we don't know the exact reason for the hardship that the believers in Jerusalem are facing at this moment. Some think that it's uh, in reference to a famine that was happening in the region at the time. Others think that it just has to do with the persecution from their fellow Jews who didn't, were not big fans of them kind of leaving their Jewish faith and following Jesus and seeing him as Lord and King and as the Messiah. But whatever the case, Paul's going around and he's raising financial support from from these Gentile churches that he helped to start over the years. And the problem is that the Corinthian believers are not super stoked, right? They're, they're not real stoked about Paul's idea, his request that they should give towards these struggling churches and believers in Jerusalem, right? And we know that because Paul has to bring the same issue back up again in 2 Corinthians, and he has to kind of dive back into it and challenge them on it and correct them on some of that stuff. But it's important that you don't misunderstand, right? It's not that the Corinthians weren't, uh, weren't generous people in general. Uh, almost all the public buildings in Corinth were, were, uh, were given by wealthy donors, um, entertainment places, places that they would have art and theater and plays and also the athletic games that would happen throughout the year. That those were, were all donated by wealthy people, right? And so people in Corinth were generous, but they were very specifically generous, Right? See, in Corinth, you, you gave to things that benefited you in return, right? You didn't give to the poor, and you certainly did not give to the poor in another country because there's nothing in it for you. Right? In Corinth, financial generosity was just merely a tool that you used to climb up the social ladder, right? And so wealthy people would give finances to the city or, or to institutions, right? And, and so the, they would they would. And in turn, those people would elevate and honor them because of their, their generosity, right? And so it's kind of this win-win proposition, right? The city or the institution kind of get the money it needed, and these wealthy individuals in Corinth would get the praise and the honor that everyone in Corinth was after. And so in contrast, Paul's request for them to give to believers in hurting churches in Jerusalem that was just like a lose-lose situation in the Corinthian believers' eyes, right? Like, not only do you lose your money... But you don't get anything in return, right? Nobody honors you. Nobody praises you. Nobody sees you as, oh, wow, this guy's really generous. Wow, we should really elevate and honor him in our society. You give money to somebody who you're never going to meet. And so the Corinthians, they think, what's the point of that, right? Like, there's nothing in it for me. Like, I don't, I don't really see, the, I'm, not, I'm not really jonesing about that, Paul. Like, we're not, I don't know, right? The reality is that the, the selfishness of the Corinthian believers, it, it fundamentally reveals that they have an ownership mentality when it comes to their money, right? 
See, an owner thinks that they're entitled to whatever they have, whether it's because they worked hard or, or they earned it or they deserved it or, or whatever reason, right? And so an owner thinks, I deserve what I have, right? What's mine is mine, so I'm going to use it the way I want, right? And since, like the Corinthians, we are selfish by nature, the reality is that that's a, an attitude that we also tend to have a lot of the time. In contrast, though, a biblical view of money be, begins by seeing not as us as the owner of all things, but as God, as the true owner of all things. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all those who live in it. Job 41, God's writing to Job, he says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And so the reality is, is that we don't own anything that we have. Not our money, not our things, not, not even the time or skills that we use to make money. Deuteronomy 8, uh, God says to those people, he says, You may say to yourself, my power and strength, I produce by my hands this wealth for me. But remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. See, the reality is that the picture that we get in the Bible is that we are not the owner of anything. God is the owner. He's the true owner of everyone and everything, everywhere. And so whatever we have is ultimately something that he has temporarily entrusted to us. And so that makes that us is that we're not owners. Instead, we are stewards. A steward is, is somebody who's been entrusted with another person's resources and who has been given the task of managing those resources according to the owner's vision and values. See, a steward's been someone who's been entrusted with someone else's resources I'm given the task of managing those resources in accordance with the owner's vision and values. You see, and the reality is that that's our situation exactly as God's people. See, whatever we possess is God's property, and he has given to us the, the responsibility of looking after it, which means that we are not free to use it however we want to. Instead, we are invited, called that we might manage our resources in accordance with God's vision and his values, his priorities, See, an owner thinks what's mine is mine. I'll use it the way I want. But a, a steward has a different mindset. A steward thinks what's mine is God's. I'll use it how he wants. And that's a radically different view. You see, the reality is that stewardship is the fundamental principle that undergirds pretty much everything that the Bible has to say about money, especially when it comes to giving like we see in our passage this morning. And so while the specific issue that we see Paul addressing here in these verses is kind of like this special offering for these hurting believers in the churches of, of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, right? As we look at what he has to say here about, about giving as well as his follow-up in chapter uh, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, we're actually going to see is what it looks like to have the mindset of a steward, when it comes to thinking about giving in general. We see the mindset of a steward. And so uh, what Paul has to say about stewardship, I think what, what it looks like to have the mindset of the steward in, the, in these passages, I think can be summed up in basically kind of five simple principles, five, five things that are, that are principles that help us to think about what it looks like to have the mindset of the steward. And the first is, is simply this, that a steward gives first. The Bible teaches that generosity and giving is to be the top priority of a steward of God's resources. And so we should give first and then steward the remaining resources as God leads us. Paul begins verse 2, right? He says that the Corinthians are to set aside their giving on the first day of the week. 
Now, some commentators think that this, is a, this specific instruction is because laborers would often get paid on that day of the week. But whatever day that they got paid is really irrelevant. The, the point that Paul's trying to make is that it should be a high priority, a first priority. See, the principle of giving first aligns with the Old Testament theme that we see of giving of first fruits, right? God instructs his people, right, in Exodus 23, 19, bring the best of your first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. In Proverbs 3, 9, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. So the reality is that the idea of giving first, it reveals that what we actually believe, right, that everything actually belongs to God, that it's not ours, and so he gets first dibs, but also that we're relying on God to provide for our needs, that we are actually trusting him and not ourselves. I'll never forget as a kid, I remember my mom one Sunday afternoon, I can't remember how old I was, but I remember her after church one afternoon just talking to me. I mean, it was on her way home or something, but she was talking to me about how she was really struggling um, to put her check in the offering plate that, that morning. And she was just like, she was like, I was just having a really hard time because the reality is we have a lot of expenses coming up this month and like, it's, it's going to be tough, right? It's going to be really tight. And what she told me is that in the end, she did end up giving because what she knew is that the truth was that God had always provided and that there was no reason that God wasn't going to stop providing for her now in that moment. And I just remember that has stuck with me deeply throughout the years. Just my mom's honesty about wrestling with that but also her just like willingness to say like what I need to do is trust that what God says is true, that he always provides and that he's always done that for us and there is no reason to believe that he wouldn't, you know? So the reality is that we, if we give as an afterthought with what's left over what, and what we've, with whatever, after we've done whatever we wanted with our own money, what it reveals is that we're thinking like owners, not like stewards, and so stewards give first, but a steward doesn't just give first. What we see is that they give first regularly. Verse 2 goes on, not only to say that they should give on the first day of the week, but on the first day of every week. And again, this is a principle, right? It's not like we're trying to like just one for one everything that's going on here, right? <laughs> the, the New Testament doesn't mandate a specific frequency for how often you should give, or a day, or a time, or whatever it is for giving, right? And so we have a freedom to establish a pattern, right? But the, the question is this, is do we give sporadically? Do we give kind of willy-nilly, or do we give intentionally? Do we give regularly? Do we give deliberately? You see, for a lot of us, that just has to do with setting up those patterns about when you get paid or when your income's irregular. Maybe it looks a little bit different. But the principle is this, is that giving regularly, it requires intentionality. It requires planning, right? You can't give first and you can't give regularly if you don't have a budget, right? And it's being intentional about that. At the end of verse 2, Paul says that he doesn't want them to, he wants them to regularly set aside money so that when he comes, that he won't have to take up collections, right? What he's saying is that I don't want to arrive and have you feel pressured. I'm not trying to get some emotional like guilt trip out of you. He says, I want you, when I am far away, when there is no pressure on you, what I want to encourage you to do is think deliberately and think ahead and be intentional about regularly giving and setting aside resources for God's work and his people. You see, a steward isn't characterized by giving on emotion or impulse. They plan it out. And so Han and I, whenever we give, whenever our income changes, we always just ask the question, all right, what's the first thing on the list, right? We always have to ask, how much can we give? And can we increase that? 
But also, it doesn't mean that every part of your giving should be pre-planned. For us, Hannah and I actually set aside money regularly every month. We kind of just put it into our savings account. And it's like giving that's on top of the other stuff that we do. And we set that aside for when unexpected opportunities arise. Maybe it's like a college student's going on a missions trip, or a single mom needs some help, or a church planter needs some extra funds. And so we have resources that are set aside as well so that we can give to stuff like that when it comes up, right? But even that takes intentionality, right? It takes thought. It takes forethought. And the reality is that if we hadn't thought about that stuff ahead, we would never give because it's just inconvenient and you never think about it. You've got plenty of other stuff on your mind. The reality is when it comes to giving, if you don't plan to give, you can't give first and you won't give regularly. Jamie Munson writes it this way. He says, regular giving requires us to live a disciplined life and also serves as this constant reminder that what we have does not actually belong to us. Irregular giving indicates poor stewardship and a reluctance to give a lack of planning or laziness. So a steward we see gives first, stewards characterized by giving regularly, and third what we see in in these verses that a a steward is characterized by giving proportionately. (coughs) Verse 2 continues, right? He says, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. And he says, everyone, each one of you, speaking to Christians here, he says, each one of you should give. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor. He doesn't tell the wealthy Corinthians that they should give and that everyone else should rely on them. He says, no, if you have an income, then you should give. But the interesting thing here is that Paul does not give a specific amount or even a specific percent. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't give a specific amount or a percent. He just says, in keeping with your income. Literally, that phrase is, as this person, as you have been prospered by the Lord. See, the reality is that God gives more money to some people to steward and less money to others, right? That's his prerogative to do. He's the owner. And so people who make more will end up giving more, and people who make less will end up giving less. But the amount that you give is not important. (coughs) See, what's Paul's after and what he's, is that, that we should be thinking about the proportion of our giving. In Mark 12, Jesus himself, he rebukes these, these wealthy individuals who are making a show out of giving these large sums of money. And instead he praises this poor widow who gives just two small coins. In Mark 12, 44, he writes, they gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything that she had. You see, God is not concerned with the amount of our giving. What he's after is our hearts because our hearts, in, in, the, in giving a proportion, it reveals our hearts. And Jesus isn't saying like, oh, you gotta give 100%. That's the only thing he's happy with, right? Like, that's not how that works, right? He's not trying to, that's not what that verse is about, right? But instead, what he's trying to do is, he's trying to say is that the amount that you give is really not that important. Because you can be wealthy and give a large number and it doesn't really mean something to you. But you can have a little and give a lot to you, and that matters. You see, the question then that's always asked is what proportion should we give, right? What percent? Some people think that, that we should tithe, which means literally to give one-tenth, and that would point, they would point to kind of Old Testament passages where God gives his people this specific instruction. And there are a couple of problems with that thinking about, thinking, of the, uh, thinking about our own giving in this context as thinking about doing in the context of a tithe. And the first is that um, there wasn't just one tithe in the Old Testament God's people. There was like two or three, and depending on the year, that was between about 25 and 30% of your income. And then there was a bunch of other opportunities that you would have to give, and opportunities to give generously towards God's work and his people. And, and so the reality is if we're going to tithe, it's really a lot more like 30, 35%, something, somewhere around there, right? 
But you have to understand that the tithe in the Old Testament was a tax just as it was an offering. Right? It was a means for providing for the civil and religious structures in the society. Right? Israel was a theocracy. Right? And so the, the church and the government were kind of one united thing. And so there was a tax just as much as it was an offering. And so we, we don't live in a theocratic government. And so that just doesn't really make sense even to think about it that way. But last and most importantly is that we are never told to tithe in the New Testament. The only time tithing is even mentioned is when Jesus rebukes Pharisees for tithing out of their spice racks and not loving God, right? And so when we survey the New Testament, we don't find a prescribed formula. We don't find a fixed amount that believers are supposed to give. There's no specific percentage. And so the question is, like, how do we figure out how much to give, right? And the simple answer to that question is, like, that's between you and God. And you can talk to him about it, right? Like, I'm not in charge of that. Like, you can talk to him. But I think we do see, one of the next principle I think we see helps give us a little bit of guidance along those lines. And the fourth thing that we see is this, and we see it in, in the second, in, in second Corinthians where Paul has to kind of come back to this issue with this church. And what, he, what we see is that we see is that a steward gives sacrificially. Just like Jesus does in Mark 12 when he affirms the sacrificial giving of the woman who uh, just put in two coins, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul applauds the Macedonian believers for giving generously despite the fact that they were in the middle of very difficult situations themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2 and 4 reads this way. It's talking, again, Paul here about the Macedonian believers. He says, in the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. See what Paul is saying here about the Macedonian believers as he's writing about their example to the church in Corinth, right? Is that they didn't give out of their abundance. They didn't give out of their leftovers. They, they didn't give out of what they had at the end when they had used up all they wanted. They gave sacrificially, he says, as much as they were able and beyond. See, the principle that we see here and throughout the New Testament is that opposed to giving out of our excess, we're called to give as God's people. Our giving should be characterized by a sacrificial nature. I think C.S. Lewis uh, sums it up best. He writes in Mere Christianity about this. He says this. He says, I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things that we would like to do and cannot because our giving excludes them. So the reality is when it comes to thinking about how much you should give, like you can talk to God about it, right? I don't have a percentage to give you. I don't have some guide, some rubric for you to work off of. That's between you and the Lord. But I encourage you to ask the question, are you giving enough that you notice? Are you giving enough that it actually impacts you in any real and meaningful way? Enough that it makes a difference in your lifestyle. Maybe you can't quite have the vacation that you would otherwise have or go as often as you would like to go. Or maybe you need to buy a used car instead of a new one. Or I know that the market right now is a little bit different on that. But um, maybe, there are, maybe you have to save up an extra couple of years in order to redo the kitchen that you've been wanting to redo or to put the down payment on the house that you've been wanting to get. I just want to be clear. 
Sacrificial giving does not mean that you cannot have nice things or go nice places, right? That's poverty theology, and that's a load of crap, right? God is good, he is generous, and he loves to bless, right? God is not some stingy ogre who just wants you to live on, like, oatmeal and whatever. Like, for the, like that's not who God is. God is a good and generous father who loves to bless, Right? And so that's not what it means, right, to be characterized by giving, by giving sacrificially. But the question is, is that giving that does not impact your life in any way, that's not sacrificial and therefore probably is not enough. My encouragement to you as you think about your own giving is to keep asking the question, is to keep raising the amount that you give until you feel it. Keep raising the amount that you give until you feel it. And the reality is that for some people, that's going to be a lot lower amount, and for others, it will be a lot higher, and it doesn't matter, because what God's after is your heart. And so we don't give because God needs our money, and we don't give to show, we give instead to show our gratitude and our dependence on Jesus. What happens is that in return, he gives us joy, which leads to the final principle that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 9, is that we see that a steward gives joyfully, a steward gives cheerfully. Do you notice at the end of that previous passage how Paul says that the Macedonian Christians, he says that they urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. See, giving for them was not a duty. It was not an obligation. It was not something that they felt that they were, that they were being guilt-tripped into doing. <clears throat> Likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul writes, each of you should give what you've decided in your own heart to give, right? Not a percent, not a, he doesn't give them instructions. It's about your heart between you and God, right? And he says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, instead for God loves a cheerful giver. See, what happens is when the grace of God gets worked out deep in your heart, what happens is that the question becomes not, much, not how much do I have to give, but how much can I give? You see, when you see yourself as an owner, what will happen is that you will always approach giving with a reluctance and an obligation and like a dutiful sense of something that you're supposed to be doing. And it will always feel like a sacrifice you do not want to make. But if you're characterized by the mindset of a steward, what will happen is that you'll be excited to see Jesus transform and change people's lives. And you'll be excited to play a part in that by giving, and you won't see it as a chore, but like the Macedonian believers, you will see it like a privilege and an honor to get to be a part of that. I've done support raising for my entire career. For the first seven years after college, my wife and I were, um, were in, uh, on staff of an organization called InterVarsity, and we raised support like missionaries to college students on, uh, on campuses in Wisconsin. And when we planted a church, we raised support because you can't start a church with no people and expect to survive, right? And so we've... we've We've raised support for the better part of the last 12 years. And the thing that has always been one of the most surprising and yet most encouraging thing to me is when, when we go to thank the people that, that have generously and sacrificially given so that God's work might be advanced on campus or here in Dubuque as we plan a church, what always surprises me is that people say no. Thank you. When people say no, thank you for giving us the chance to be a part of what God is doing. And when those conversations happen, I am always floored by that. This just sticks out to me because what they get is they, they get it. They have the mindset of a steward who is excited about God's vision and his values being the thing that shapes the way that they use their money. And so giving for them is a joy. It's an honor. It's a privilege. 
See, that's the heart of a steward. A steward is filled with joy when the money that they manage is used in accordance with God's vision and his priorities. And so what you see throughout Paul's letters to the Corinthians as it comes to the idea of giving, right, is that he wants them to have this, the mindset of a steward who is characterized by a, a godly kind of generosity, one who is characterized by giving first and regularly and proportionally and sacrificially and cheerfully. And the question is simply this, how do you get that mindset? How do, you, how do you get that mindset? How do you become characterized by that kind of a godly generosity? And I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I will tell you right now, it does not happen by feeling guilty about it. It doesn't happen when you feel like, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do. I wish I should really do that. I'm just going like, to feel really bad about it, and then I'll get motivated to do it. Guilt and shame are powerful motivators, but they are always temporary, and they do not transform your heart. See, instead, the Bible doesn't motivate us towards giving with guilt or shame or duty or obligation or trying to make up for our sin or trying to impress or please God. God does not need your money. He's the owner of all things, remember? Instead, what happens is the Bible points us to God's radical generosity towards us. And that stirs up in us a joyful response to his generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes this to the Corinthians who, who are wrestling with being excited about giving in a way that doesn't benefit them. And he writes this, he says, See to it that you also excel in the grace of giving, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, here's the reality, church. The only way you go from thinking like a selfish owner to a generous steward is when the good news of the gospel transforms your heart. That's the one thing that changes that in you. Janie Ortland, she writes it this way. She says, we are to be generous because we have experienced the redemptive generosity of God himself. When you see that when you were poor, when you had nothing to give, when you could not pay God back, when you were not impressive and could not honor him as you should, he became poor for you so that through his sacrifice, you might become rich. Ephesians 1 says that it's because of Jesus that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That we've been forgiven, cleansed, adopted by the great king and creator of the universe. You see, when you see how generous God has been to you, what happens is that you become a radically generous person yourself. One author puts it this way. It says, generosity is the fullest expression of the life of a steward. It expresses in practical and powerful ways the message which is at the core of our faith that God gave his one and only son so that you and I might have life. Church, that's, that's the thing that transforms us. The good news of the gospel is we see God's radical generosity towards us. That's what motivates us. That's what empowers us. That's what transforms our hearts from thinking like selfish and greedy owners to thinking like generous and joyful stewards who are excited and even glad to be a part of what God is doing in the advancing of his kingdom through being generous people. You see, it's God's radical generosity towards us that we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. 
We're reminding ourselves that Jesus' body and his blood were broken for us, that they were sacrificed for us, as he received the penalty for our selfishness and our greed as thinking like owners, and yet that we might receive the gracious reward of being beloved children and stewards of all that he's given. And so communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing in any way. And I just need to be overtly clear, neither does how much you give. Neither does how much you give. Both communion and giving are ways that we get to respond to the gospel and all that God has done for us, not ways that we try to change how God sees us. The one thing that does that is a faith in Jesus' life and death on our behalf. And so instead, communion is an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus, so that in remembering God's radical generosity towards us, we might be filled to overflowing with a life that is lived in generosity back to him and to his people. And so the bread and the juice are in the back, and during our time of communion, you can go back, and, and there's a table on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice, or you can take one of the communion packs that are there, whichever you feel ready to do. And so as we sing and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus who became poor for you, sacrificing his very life so that you might be forgiven and cleansed and adopted into his family and given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and if that's even something you really even want right now, I just want to encourage you, like you are absolutely welcome here. I'm so glad that you would join us. But I encourage you to hold off on taking communion. Instead, come to receive Jesus. He, he's what you need. He is what, he is what you are longing for. And so as we sing and as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Talk with him. Ask him to remind you about his radical generosity towards you. Ask him to make that fresh and new and compelling in your heart this morning. And ask him to transform your heart from, from an ownership mentality to a steward mentality so that you'd be characterized by a, a godly generosity in response to his generosity towards you. And ask that he would do that for your joy, but more than anything, so that he would get all the glory as a people who trust him and love him, give generously back to the God who has been generous to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to come before you this morning, and we just want to be honest and confess that oftentimes we live and think and act like selfish owners and we forget, Jesus, that you are the true owner of all things and that we are merely stewards who have been entrusted with your resources. And so, God, I just want to humbly ask this morning that you would uh, correct our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see where that is a mentality that's been shaping the way that we think about our money and about giving and everything else. And God, we ask that you, by your grace, that you, that you might cause us to see the gospel as good news that transforms our hearts from thinking like selfish owners to being generous stewards. And so God, help, would you, by your spirit, would you cause the gospel to be fresh and beautiful good news as we see that you gave all of yourself for us. God, help us to give ourselves all completely back to you. Amen.